as a chef, you have to be curious by nature and, you know, always asking why or how or where does it come from. And I just feel like it just never stops learning. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During the last few years, there have been many hospitality professionals that have sought temporary work in other fields while the industry was in disarray. From butchering to baking, stacking supermarket shelves and working the land, there are some that have found new joy in this detour and now see their career opportunities as multifaceted across different fields. Simone Watts is the head chef and farmer at Barragunda in Cape Shank, Victoria. Simone, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm good. You've uh, had quite a sort of career change and not as well in the last couple of years, but really put your hands in the soil. Well, what's it been like? Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty incredible. It was always going to be a, a temporary career change and hopefully still is a temporary career change, but it's certainly gone on a little bit longer than I expected it to. But I'm kind of feeling like that's all happened for a reason and that without that extra time on the farm, I wouldn't have got to know sort of the crazy, very unique coastal terroir over here on the Cape Shank. And, uh, you know, it's different to the seasonality that happens up in Red Hill on the peninsula and and other areas. So I I do feel a lot more in touch with the property now, having that extra time. Well, tell us about that transition from chef to farmer. It it seems like an obvious and easy link, but what were the challenges for you? Um, Look, it was really gradual, I think. Uh, you know, I had always lived and worked in the city, um, but spent most of my weekends escaping, if you want to call it that, to, you know, to country environments, to country restaurants, to, you know, if I'm not in the kitchen, I'm usually hiking. Uh, and if, if I was traveling, it was always sort of to crazy, quite remote places. I did most of my training under um, Greg Maloof and a little bit of time at Pearl as well. So I think I've always been drawn to that Silk Route sort of travel and craziness. Um, so coming back to the city was, I guess, becoming a little bit, I don't want to say a drag, but it just wasn't inspiring me anymore. And um, I'd been living in Sri Lanka for a little while and I, I got back and uh, I actually got in contact with Adam De Silva, who I used to work with at Pearl, and they had a job going at Tonka and I applied for that and in a sort of crazy couple of days ended up actually taking the head excuse me, the head chef job at, uh, at Coda and had, um, had a great time there. And like, I think it was that job though, which, and I don't want to be sound like I'm disregarding Coda in, in any way, the, um, the efforts that the team has put in there to implicate sort of more sustainable and ethical practices is incredible. But for me, it was just that turning point in my life when I really realized that a big city restaurant with high volumes and, and living and working in the city just just wasn't for me. Uh, and I took a little bit of time off uh, and I think I went to Malaysia at that point for, to, for three or four weeks and just threw myself into the jungle and hiked and ate delicious food and I came back and I remember walking through, I think it was Carlton Gardens or one of those gardens that's right on the sort of border of the city. And I got to that brink where there's like green park and concrete I almost had a panic attack. I was just like, I can't, I can't go into the city anymore. I can't do this. And I sat down with, um, with Kate, Kate Bartholomew, uh, a week later to resign. And before I even got the words out, she just sort of went, 
I know, <laughs> because that's the sort of completely in touch human that Kate is. She's a beautiful person. I've got all the time in the world for her. But I think she just knew that I was at this point that the city, the city just wasn't for me anymore. And um, after that, I pulled another little Houdini, Houdini act and disappeared to Borneo for a while and helped a friend um, open, an old friend open a restaurant in Kuching in Sarawak. And then I, uh, then I went to Sumatra and lived on a 500-year-old mango farm in, uh, on an island in the middle of Lake Toba, which is uh, the biggest volcanic uh, lake in the world. And I lived and sort of worked there for a little while, which it sounds very romantic, but it was all, uh, it was quite quirky. This weird German guy and his Sumatran wife ran it. And it was, I think I had fish curry for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day for two months. <laughs> um, but it was, um, it was probably there that I went, all right, you've got to start making some decisions. This crazy runaround life can't be forever. You're not going back to the city. Uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> Uh, you know, that sort of gut-wrenching feeling when you're travelling and having the time of your life and remember that there is a real life somewhere that you have to go back to. <laughs> um, so I, uh, uh, after that, I remember sitting there and my family lives in the Mornington Peninsula and I was looking at, um, uh, I didn't really, I, I wasn't at a stage where I wanted to go back into the kitchen and I started looking out biodynamic farms uh, on the Mornington Peninsula and I came across Transition Farm who are, uh, it was Robin and Peter run Transition Farm and, and they're just incredible humans and a beautiful place and I applied for an internship there and uh, came back and decided to sort of stay with my folks and spend three months because I wasn't earning any money uh, working at Transition Farm and as I got to know them more and actually work on the farm and hear their stories and see the incredible connection and understanding that they had to the natural world, um, I knew that that was sort of something that I needed to spend more time around. And um, it actually inspired a, a dinner series that I then went on to do. And instead of just working at Transition Farm, I also volunteered at three other farms down here. Um, Wollumbi Farm at the time, which is now sadly closed, uh, which is an organic free-range pork farm, and Main Ridge Dairy, which uh, is sadly having a little vacation at the moment as well. But uh, So I volunteered at the farms in exchange for produce that we then put a dinner series on at Montalto um, to sort of celebrate the farmers and, and the peninsula. And um, I guess that's when I knew that I'd found my place and my people. <laughs> um, but in saying that, then the little gypsy in me went, what's next? <laughs> and I, um, I, I was getting, using a lot more natives at that stage and really sort of falling in love with a lot of the coastal natives that you find down here on the peninsula. But the, there's, there's still a, a rainforest baby in me. It's still, you know, my heart is always, a small part of it is always in the jungle or rainforest somewhere. And I was doing a lot of research, um, for sort of just, just different native fruits that I wasn't aware of and everything I was looking at was far north Queensland, far north Queensland, far north Queensland. And um, so I went online and just had sort of a, a look at what jobs were up there and coincidentally there was a job um, going at a native fruit farm uh, that also sort of made a, a series of preserves and whatnot. So I took the job and moved to the Atherton Tablelands um, in far north Queensland and I spent a year working a bit on the farm, but largely making their preserves. Um, the, the farm, oh, sorry, the company Rainforest Bounty, they're an amazing group of people that um, 
they, they don't just sort of grow native fruit. They also work with local farmers in growing um, seedlings themselves and selling them on to try and regenerate um, old dairy farms into native fruit forests, uh, which in turn creates food for um, different endangered species like the cassowary and um, different other bird life. Uh, so I think it was that the first time that I'd really heard the words regenerating instead of just sustainable. And I realised that what I'd been doing, what I'd been trying to do of just kind of doing the right thing and moseying along was never going to be enough, uh, that we really needed to give back to the natural world and that as a chef I had been taking for a very long time and I wanted to be a part of learning more about that. So stayed with them for a while, but I think I got to a point where I was missing cooking and I was missing create, being creative uh, and at that point, um, a job came up at the Daintree Eco Lodge as their executive chef. And um, I went in there for a few years. And I think, you know, that was where everything came together. It was, I could be connected to the natural world. I could be creative. It was small scale as well. So I could talk to the diners. I could tell the story of the farmers, of the food. And then, you know, it, it all sort of made sense uh, except for the fact I was a really long way away from my family <laughs> and uh, I'm very close to my family. I love them dearly. So um, after about three years or so, uh, it was well, it was actually longer than that with sort of the time in the Tablelands as well and another little stint overseas in between. Um, it was time to come home and um, I got in touch with um, Hayley Morris who, who owns um, the Daintree Eco Lodge but also um, the farm down here and she'd always sort of said, come and see the farm when uh, you get home. And I'd always had it in my head that uh, it was going to be a little farm. <laughs> and I got here and it's um, a thousand acres with 600 mature orchard trees, two market gardens and uh, enough space to graze pork. We're, uh, we're also doing lamb and um, cattle already. Uh, and I sort of went, Hayley, we need to share this place with the world. And um, that's when the plans went in place for Barragunda and uh, then... <laughs> a little pandemic happened in between and so the planning process along with the joys of negotiating stuff with council has made things um, stretch out a little bit longer than we planned but that's the very long-winded story of I guess how I, I got to getting my hands dirty as well as starting a restaurant. <laughs> well I want to explore Barragunda uh, shortly but What's this fascination with rainforest? Do you, do you have stories of your immersing yourself in Borneo and Sumatra, Sri Lanka, all these experiences? Uh, they're just so wild. Just so, you know, there's not, like I've never owned a TV and I would sit in our little like tiny apartment thing that we was, that looked out over the beach um, uh, not far from the Daintree Rainforest. And we turn the lights off at night and there'd be like this big glass window looking outside. And rather than a TV, we would literally, this sounds a bit pathetic, but we would literally just sit and watch this glass window and things would fly in every night that you just go, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and they'd just be like bugs or frogs or, you know, you get a call and there'd be a python in the roof or, you know, a bush turkey would run through the kitchen. And I just love that craziness and that and, and I love the heat. I, I hate I hate the cold. Um, but everything is just big and lush and uh, grows quickly and has this. Um, just I think it just always reminds me of how small I am and how incredible Mother Nature is. 
take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family when you were a kid? Um, like I think, you know, I grew up uh, in a, a pretty standard, standard country Australian family. Um, my family has always loved to eat, but I don't know whether, you know, uh, we, we were never really exposed to localised farms and things. I lived in Gippsland, but sort of more industrial Gippsland. Um, but uh, my dad was a very keen fisherman, still is. And I think although there wasn't necessarily that connection to growing our own food as much, uh, they always taught me to respect food and to love food and to share food, I think, as well. I've got this memory as a kid of whenever we'd go fishing and we'd catch too much, my dad would get the little, like, paper plate with the flathead fillets and he'd make me take it around to our next-door neighbours to give it to them. I remember as a kid hating it. I was so embarrassed that dad would make us go to the next-door neighbours. But he wasn't, you know, he was teaching us to only take what you need and to only... uh, and, and to respect food and, you know, that seafood that wasn't going to be around forever. And, um, yeah, I, I really respect them for that. What was the lure for you to move into hospitality? And what were those first years, few years like for you? Um, I actually never wanted to be a chef. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> it was never, ever on my radar. I think I did home economics at school, but that was only so I could eat, you know, little sponge cakes on the way home in the in the, in the bus because I was a piglet, not because I wanted to cook. Um, I always wanted to be a graphic designer. I did all of um, uh, art-based subjects in year 12 and applied for graphic design after I finished. And uh, I didn't actually end up getting into the course that I wanted. And I was doing a design internship at the time. And I was working at a little cafe on the weekend just to pay my rent and uh, live in the city. And I was doing this internship and I'd go in to the de- in the day and I would sit in front of the computer for eight hours designing really boring business cards and just nonsense stuff that, you know, you, you have this romantic notion of what being a designer is going to be like when you're a kid and it, it wasn't really that. And um, on the weekends, I was working at this crazy cafe with this chef that had travelled the world and had all of these great stories and we'd have a laugh and there was this camaraderie. And I remember calling mum and dad and going, I don't think I want to do design anymore. And they're like, awesome. We were really glad that we paid for all of that design, <laughs> that stuff through school. And that's all we have to listen to for the last five years. And I said, I think I'm going to be a chef. Uh, and I just, you know, they had never heard me talk about it up until then. And I think they probably thought I was crazy, but that lifestyle of being on my feet, um, I get bored really easily. So, and I have the attention span of a boiled carrot. So, I really like to <laughs> just be doing different things. And, uh, I, yeah, so this um, the guy I was working with actually had a friend who um, needed an apprentice. So um, I finished my design internship in the day and I did the first year of my apprenticeship at night at this little, um, just little restaurant in the city. Uh, and then from there went, this is really what I want to do. And that's when I went um, to Pearl and then on to uh, Momo where Greg took me under his wing. And I've just never had a mentor like that that I don't think a mentor like that exists it's such a shame that he's on the other side of the world now he uh you know he used to get whole lambs in with the apprentices and sit and we'd get a lamb and he'd get a lamb and sit them up sit us down and break them down slowly with us and you just don't have people that take that time and care anymore um so yeah that he, he really I think taught me to be passionate about food and also taught me a lot about managing other people uh, and, and being empathetic as a, as a manager. 
What sort of impact has this exploration that you've had into different rainforests and the the food, tropical food, what sort of impact has it had on your cooking? Uh, it makes me miss it a lot being down here. <laughs> um, I, I am pretty strict in sort of my hyper-local uh, philosophies when it comes to food. So when I am back down here, you know, I'm not using Davidson plum or green ants and, and things that um, you would get from up north because – I don't know. I think after being very spoilt and having green ant nests in my backyard or picking David's and plums on the way to school, uh, school work, <laughs> um, it, uh, it makes it feel like I'm disrespecting them if I'm getting them in a Ziploc cryback bag frozen from a veg supplier. So I tend to, yeah, stick to, to using stuff that's down here. And we have a lot of beautiful natives uh, down here and a lot of b- beautiful produce down here. But um, I definitely miss the lush tropical, like going there. I go to Mossman Market up there every week and every week there would be a different fruit or something come into season that I'd never used before. So I miss that, uh, you know, I think I'm more familiar with things down here. So I miss that excitement um, working with, with tropical veg for sure. Are there any uh, tropical fruits or veg that you can tell us about, any sort of tips or techniques that you did learn, given that that most chefs don't really know how to use them? um, Look, a lot of them you probably couldn't get quite regularly, but I used to really like using um, a fruit called a black sapote. Um, It's also called the chocolate pudding fruit, and you get it and you have to wait until it's really, really ripe, and the inside of it is the texture and consistency of a chocolate pudding, and when, like, folded through ganache or we used to do like a, just a soft scented simple chocolate pudding with it but the center was the actual flesh of this chocolate sapote fruit and it's just got the most unique flavor and texture um and then probably look a lot of the myrtles and stuff up there as well lemon myrtle and cinnamon myrtle are um things that i think it's not so much learning um how to use them it's how to recognize them in their natural environment um uh, so, you know, I, I very rarely would be ordering any of these things from a property. Most of them would be foraged. So it, it takes that little bit of research and time to, to when you're hiking, be looking at things. And I think, um, most chefs are curious by nature, but if you're going to forage and if you're going to use native produce, I think you really need to start asking more questions about what's around you and can my, my thing is usually, can I eat this? <laughs> is this going to kill me? Because there is a lot of native rainforest fruits that will. So. <laughs> Sustainability has always been at the heart of what you do, but you mentioned your experiences in the tropics um, changed that sort of thought pattern towards regenerating. Tell us about, mm-hmm. about regenerating and the experiences that you've had and, and learnings. Yeah, well, I think um. It it just goes back to the fairly simple philosophy of giving back. I think, you know, uh, we're we're long gone on being able to continue on a sustainable level because we haven't been sustainable. We've taken too much. We need to give back. And uh, on a a chefing level, if you're just in the kitchen, that can be difficult. But when when you're working the land, um, I think you start to sort of see the bigger picture. And for me, it's that... I'm never just growing vegetables. I'm growing an entire soil system underneath the earth and I'm trying to create a biodiverse family amongst my market garden area. Like I've got two hedgerows that I've been working on for the last two, 
12 months um, sort of in the middle of where I grow my veggies and they've got everything from native edibles to companion plants for bees to medicinal plants to plants that I know are perennial and have deep root systems because we're growing in really sandy soil here so I need to create sort of you know a denser soil web underneath so that that imparts um, nutrient density to my actual veggies but then you know in the last 12 months I've seen this wave of um, new animals coming into the garden you know there's always five or six or seven different species of birds hopping around with me when I'm harvesting you know a blue tongue lizard ran past me yesterday which means you know he's in there eating the snails and um, when you start to create that system um, then things like you know herbicides and pesticides which we don't use anyway we're completely organic but there's just no need for them because things look after themselves and um on top of growing veggies at Barragunda, a very large part of what we do. Um, uh, my partner runs a not-for-profit um, organisation called Reforest and uh, he's working on revegetating a large portion of um, the property here. We're, we're fortunate to be in between two national parks uh, and we're hoping to create corridors in between the two that you know could eventually bring koalas back from Greensbush down to Cape Shank. And uh, so that sort of, you know, we're not just here growing fruit and vegetables and grazing lamb. It is very much trying to give back to um, an environment that was colonised very poorly for many, many years. <laughs> you mentioned you like to operate really hyper-locally. Tell us about um, what you are producing and, and sort of the produce of the region as well that you've got your hands on. Yeah, look, um, my overall goal at Barragunda is to um, create a collective. So we're a very large land holding and to be honest, the size of the property is probably its biggest downfall because it is so hard just to maintain it, but access to land on the peninsula is quite difficult and very expensive. So we would like to create a collective here where we have um, different farmers that can come and lease space on the farm. Um, and within that, it sort of go sort of getting back to your question, I don't want to be a jack of all trades here. I think, you know, there's people that have spent years mastering their craft, whether that's raising pigs, whether that's cut flowers or micro dairies, what have you. Um, I don't want to try and do it all. I would rather try and give people the access to space to do that and then in turn create a real sense of space and pride for the Mornington Peninsula. I think that's something as um, as chefs, as consumers that we've really lost. Um, I think, you know, once upon a time um, when people lived on the land, they they lived from it and they had this respect and, um, yeah, and, and a sense of place. It was their home. And I think because, you know, the peninsula especially, there's so many people that just come down here for weekends and stuff. There's that loss of gratefulness for how lucky we are to be able to produce so much food down here. So, I would really like to try and instill that a little bit more with people on the farm. Um, we're currently, we have two, um, two acres of market garden. I only run a very small part of that because it's just me in between events and my hands uh, not being able to pull weeds out fast enough. If I tried to do any more, I, <laughs> I'd be in trouble. Um, and then we have, um, so we've got uh, avocados, olives, figs, quince, nectarines, peaches, cherries, apples, pears, hops, almonds, <laughs> um, and then a very large native vegetation area as well that um, I utilise a lot from. Um, and then we're also sort of on the back beaches so I can 
take the quad bikes down to Bush Rangers Bay and um, sort of forage in some of the areas that are outside of the national park spaces. Um, and then uh, we have cattle and lamb at the front, um, but we're hoping to get someone on to, to run pigs um, and probably get some guys in as well to look at doing um, some charcuterie work in the kitchen. I, I kind of, I, I love the idea of the kitchen being a collective as well. We're only going to run four days and if, um, if, there, if there's that space in the kitchen and that idea where people can sort of come in and out and produce different things and work together rather than just having that, just that simple format or roster system of, of a kitchen where everyone's trying to do everything. It's like, well, if the kitchen's closed Monday, Tuesday, why can't a couple of guys come in and have their dry ages there and make their charcuterie and not try and be factoring that into busy services and prep levels? I, I just want to, I think that's something that... Uh, this time off has, has given a lot of chefs of like, how are we going to do this better? How can we be more productive, more economic, uh, look after our staff? You know, no one's pushing the seven day week thing anymore. And, you know, things like set menus and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's given us time to, I think, just, just run things a little bit, just a bit smarter. The circumstances of the last couple of years have left you in some ways sort of kitchenless. What, what have you enjoyed about that? <laughs> um, not doing the dishes by hand. <laughs> um, look, I think it has just been that time off uh, to to learn more about the property, but also also time off to to collaborate. Um, I think um, like a lot of well, most chefs that are running kitchens, that's that's all we have time to do. <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying to manage staff and write menus and prepare them and cook them and have service. And there's not really much time outside of that if you want to have, you know, a bit of social life and downtime to, to think about um, collaborating and, and doing bits and pieces. And, you know, there's been so many chefs this last 12, 24 months that have been kitchenless. And I really loved watching everyone sort of be like, Hey, what are you doing? Do you want to do this together? Hey, can we maybe do something together or, you know, working and going, working on farms or doing crazy pop-ups. And, um, I, so I've enjoyed having that time to, to really work with other people that I would never have had the time or headspace to, to do. Um, so I think, you know, when I go back to running a kitchen full time, there will be a sense of like missing that. I'm sure there's a lot of chefs feeling the same way that are just all taking on new roles going, oh, I can't just pop over here for three months or do this now for that. So, um, yeah, that, that's certainly a positive that's come out of it all. You mentioned the importance of events in your in your new role there. Do, do you have any events that you can tell us about and, and sort of what your cooking is like now that you've immersed yourself into that sort of local environment? Yeah, um, I'm working on a really fun collaboration at the moment with Red Hill Vineyard, who are a beautiful organic uh, vineyard up in Red Hill, obviously. Um, they've been custodians of the land there, uh, don't quote me, but I think for a little over six or seven years, uh, and they've been transitioning what was um, quite a well-known winery, but uh, a winery that doesn't use the grapes from there anymore into organic practices, and they make two stunning Chardonnays and two Pinots and they came to me a little while back wanting to do something together to to launch their first vintage. So they do everything very slowly. Their first vintage was from 2019 and they're only just releasing it now. Um, so they wanted to create some sort of event to, to release the wines. And 
that was kind of pre everything hitting the fan and we were going to do do a, do a little sort of tasting restaurant in their their shed and keep it really rustic and and then it kind of went to well maybe people are only going to be able to dine outside and um, Lee had this crazy, the owner of the, the property had this crazy idea to do like a long lunch in the middle of the vines and um, to set up a kitchen in the middle of the vines. And I said, well, I don't really want to run power leads and all that sort of stuff down. So um, let's try and do the whole thing over fire. Uh, so um, we bought a little pig and pilgrim grill, which has been amazing. And he's built this crazy deck in the middle of the vines. And unfortunately, at the moment, it's um, still sort of invitation only because it's um, looking at uh, building up the profile of their wine brand. But we're hoping uh, with a few licensing and getting things across the line with council soon, we might be able to, to push that a little bit further. But um, so I'm cooking for 12 people over fire in the middle of the vines a couple of times a week at the moment. And it has like this view that looks out over Western Port Bay and it's just, just ridiculous. Like some days I just sit there going, am I even working? This is just too beautiful to be true. And their wine is just glorious. So yeah, those sort of experiences are pretty special at the moment to have the time to do that. Cooking over fire has its own challenges dealing with the natural elements. Um, What's that been like for you? And and, and what have you been cooking that you've really loved? Uh, Look, I think... Like I have a sort of standard menu that I work on um, and look, that was one of the sort of big things learning as well when it comes to growing all of your own food. I knew that I was going to be doing this um, collaboration over spring and summer. So I actually wrote the menu for it four months ago because if because I'm seeding everything, it's like, all right, I know that I'm going to have two events a week and I need this many kohlrabi and I need this many that. So I have to succession. So from four months prior so I can make sure that I have the veggies there ready for the event. So that's been a very different, you know, it's not like, what do I need the next day? Call my veg supplier and they drop it off. Um, I really have to have a lot of pre-thought with my menu writing, but uh, I always leave a couple of side dishes open to kind of put on whatever's glorious that morning on the farm. So I'll just go out and harvest those things and um, whatever, you know, is going to work well with fire, which um, there's so much around at the moment. And then the main course is always uh, barragunda lamb um, on the spit. So we've got a little rotisserie on the pig and pilgrim. So uh, I love working with and, well, the other great thing is um, being able to move through the whole animal as well. You know, it's not sort of like a set shoulder every time. So sometimes I'll just do the saddle or the shoulder or the leg on skewers. So uh, it's um it's nice to have that flexibility and um be able to use the produce uh from here so yeah it's kind of how it rolls out each week you've had the most extraordinary experiences all over the globe and we've hardly touched on any of them but what is it that you love about what you do oh, that and that i never get bored that i'm always learning i think um you know like i said before as a chef you have to be curious by nature and you know always asking why or how or where does it come from and I just feel like it just never stops learning and now when I'm throwing farming into that as well sometimes I just have to close a part of my brain off and go all right I can't learn about irrigation irrigation is my (laughs) that's this that's too much someone else can do that um but yeah I think just just never getting bored and being able to be inspired by different cultures, different areas, different landscapes. Uh, Yeah, I I love it. I love it. Well, it's bloody inspiring um, what you are doing. And um, so please keep in touch, Um, Simone. We'd love to catch up with you again. 
uh, down the track and see what you're up to. We'll see you at Barragundo once it's built. <laughs> well, I'd love that. Um, please keep in touch and, um, and we'll catch up down the track. Thanks so much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.